Please take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to Romans chapter 1. It is somewhat unconventional for me to have you go to various passages for each individual point in any given sermon. However, I am going to have you do that this morning. We'll begin in Romans chapter 1 and journey on from there. As we are beginning our sermon, if you need an outline for this morning's message, I encourage you to raise your hand, and Evan will be sure to get one of those to you, allow you to follow along both this morning, and then, of course, on the back, there is an outline for this evening as well. The title of the message, if you see it there, is The Root of Unthankfulness. We have been studying Thanksgiving now for the past two weeks. This will be our third. Next week will be our fourth and final message. We talked about what is Thanksgiving. We defined it, and we defined it as purposed and regular determination to give credit where credit is due, to give God the glory for what God has done. Last week, we talked about the command to be thankful, and we recognized that sometimes it's not enough just to know what Thanksgiving is, We need to see why it is we need to do it. And so we looked at that. Well, this week we're going to look at the other end of the coin, the other side of the coin. Get my metaphors correct. The other side of the coin. We talked about what Thanksgiving is and why we ought to do it. Let's talk about the root of unthankfulness. The root of that which is characterized as being unthankful. This past summer, my family, it was our first full year in our house, and this was our first full summer in our new house, and uh, as such, there are plenty of things that still need to be done. There's a lot of work uh, in and around the house that needs to be accomplished, and one of the things that, that became vastly apparent this year was that our, our yard needs a little bit of work. We have kind of that green weed grass, which is a nice thing and that it doesn't really have to be watered in order to live and those sorts of things. But one of the things with weed grass, at least our weed grass, is dandelions. Lots and lots of dandelions. Perhaps not as many as some other yards or, or some other fields, but there were plenty of dandelions. And so my wife and I spent some time this summer picking dandelions. Well, this was my daughter's first summer where they were not crawling or um, on their backs. This was their first summer where they were walking. So my daughters were out and about and they really enjoyed their opportunity to be out in the summer. And they saw daddy digging up these dandelions and they wanted to help daddy. Little girls are, are, are good that way. They like to help daddy. And so they came around me as I was digging up these dandelions and putting them in buckets to burn on our fire pit. And they were plucking off all of the yellow heads of those dandelions and bringing daddy each of those yellow heads, pulling up all those dandelions for me. Well, I don't know how much weeding you've done in the past, but if you know anything about pulling weeds, you know that plucking off the head of a dandelion is not really helpful for getting rid of the dandelion, is it? It gets rid of the evidence that you have dandelions because someone driving by isn't going to see a bunch of yellow heads anymore, but it's not going to get rid of the problem, is it? The problem is still there. The root is still embedded in the ground. And as long as that root is still embedded in the ground, you're probably going to see dandelions again. 
And so I could go through every year and ask my girls to pluck off the heads of every dandelion just so that we won't have to look like we have dandelions, but it's not really going to solve any problems because the next year, I guarantee you, we're going to find those dandelions again because the roots have not been taken care of. Well, unthankfulness is kind of like the head of a dandelion. Unthankfulness is a symptom of a much deeper cause. And if we don't dig down to the roots of that which is the character trait of unthankfulness, then we might be able to spot check our problems, but we're never going to solve the deeper issue. It's like when you're sick. We have a few that are sick today. It's okay to take care of symptoms, but the symptoms are only symptoms of a deeper cause. If you allow the deeper cause to continue while you're treating all of the symptoms, you're never going to get better. You have to treat the cause, not just the symptoms. So the roots of unthankfulness. What we're going to see today is that a lack of thankfulness, biblically speaking, puts us in some very bad company. We'll look at a couple passages of Scripture today and seek to discern where the root of unthankfulness really lies. You know, Last week we saw the company that thankfulness keeps. We went to various passages and recognized that thankfulness is found in lists of godly virtues that ought to be present in our lives. I think we'll find as we look at the roots of unthankfulness today that unthankfulness keeps some pretty bad company among the dangers that God warns us about in His Word. And where we're going to start this morning is in Romans chapter 1, and we're going to begin in verse 18. I'm sorry I'm not going to be summarizing context very much for you this morning for sake of time, Um, but... Romans chapter 1 is speaking about the reality that God has revealed himself to unbelievers. Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 31, in fact, is a description of man's natural state of God rejection. In it, Paul describes the very roots of what we would call today humanism. That mankind rejects the authority of creator God and elevates himself to the position of God. Now within this context, within this description, Paul reveals various attributes, symptoms we might say, of humanism, of the human condition, of what it means to be a human in the sense of our sin nature. These are symptoms that manifest themselves in the lives of those who have rejected Creator God. Continue with me in verse 20. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, They glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful. Verses 18 through the first half of 21 describe the reality that every man upon this earth has in fact been made aware of God. We talked about that just a little bit in Sunday school this morning. The reality of the illumination of God to the extent that every man is can recognize, and this is where we see it proved in Scripture, that there is in fact a God. Every man is God-conscious in the sense that the soul of man knows, whether he will admit it or not, 
that the God of the Bible exists, that this God created him, and that he is morally accountable to this God. The scriptures tell us that this is testified of in creation. That every man knows that there's a God that he is accountable to. Now, because of this state of awareness, verse 20 tells us that no man will be able to claim ignorance on the day where he stands before Almighty God. No man will be able to stand before God and say, God, I just plain didn't know. You can't send me to hell. I didn't know. No man can say that, the Scriptures tell us. No man is without excuse because the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even in his eternal power. And God had Psalm 119, excuse me, Psalm 19, 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Psalm 97, verse 6 says, the heavens declare his righteousness and all the people see his glory. So when a person stands before God and they say, God, you just never showed me that you existed. God's going to say, did you ever see the stars at night? Did you ever see the trees that were growing around you? Did you ever see green grass growing in a large field? Did you ever hear birds singing in the morning when the sun rises? Did you ever marvel as the sun set behind mountains? Then you knew that I was real. Then you knew that there indeed was a God. Because the heavens declare the glory of God so that no man is without excuse. The invisible things are seen in that which is made. In the first half of verse 21, Paul gives a final description of those who have known but rejected their Creator. Look at me in the second half of 21. But they became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Paul links two concepts in verse 21. He says, They knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but instead became vain in their own imagination. He links them not glorifying God with this concept of not being thankful. Acts chapter 17, verse 25, describes God as the one who giveth life and breath and all things. Luke 6.35 tells us that God is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. The very nature of God rejection demands an unwillingness to recognize not only God's existence, but also the benevolence of this God. To be unthankful to God is not just to inherently say, God, you do not exist, but to know that He exists, but to be unwilling to give Him the glory for His benevolence, for His goodness in our lives. And the problem is this. We talked about it a little bit last week. If God doesn't give to man life, and breath, and health, then who or what did? Is it blind luck? Random chance? Well, that's what evolution would tell us. Random chance processes have given us everything that we have and have withheld from us that which we don't have. Another big deal is going around today. See, people are kind of rejecting this idea of secular humanism in this age. We're becoming a very spiritual age, at least in America. Cosmic humanism is taking over. You won't find a whole lot of people outside of academia now that will say, no, there is no spiritual side to life. 
But what's really be, been becoming popular in Christian circles and elsewhere is the idea of karma. Well, maybe it's not random chance that has brought about my health and my life and my breath. Maybe it's karma. The idea that as I do good things, I put positive energies into the world and those positive energies flock to me as I continue to emit positive energy. And so positive energy draws positive energy and as I put more positive energy out, I'm getting more positive energy back. And the same negatively. That negative energy draws negative energy. So if I'm putting out negative energy, then I'm drawing in negative energy. And negative energy is, is, is attracting more negative energy and it's all just going to go, go uh, haywire if I put out negative energy. That's the idea of karma. Near East mysticism. Nothing in the Bible teaches that. It's false. But it's becoming very popular today. Now, if, if we look at karma or if we look at random chance processes and we say this is what has brought about the good or the bad that I'm in, well then, if I am happy or if I'm healthy, it's either because of luck or it's because of me. It's either luck or it's me. Either way, it kind of negates being thankful, doesn't it? Because everything has either happened by chance or I've pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. Why should I be thankful? We talked about that last week. So what happens then? What happens when a man who knows from creation, from the created order around him, that there is a God, and he knows that he's morally accountable to this God, what happens when he openly rejects God's authority? What happens to these men that, when they know God, verse 21, they glorify him not as God, neither are thankful to him? Well, let's see in verse 21, second half of verse 21 through 23. But became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image like to corrupt man and to and four-footed beasts and creeping things. The first result of God rejection is vain, empty, worthless thoughts. Because God can't be the reason for life and health, we need to think up new reasons for life and health. And so we have these false sciences, these false religions that work their way into the world. The false science of evolution, the false religions that incorporate karma and the word faith ideas and, and the name it and claim it gospel and all of these false gospels that are out there. Even though evolution directly contradicts observable science, even though it directly contradicts the laws of nature, it's dogmatically asserted by secular humanists. Even though the name it and claim it gospel and the word faith gospel and all of these false gospels that are out there have no basis in historical reality, the cosmic humanists claim it. And so people spend their time and their money pouring over anything and everything that will help them forget God. They pour over amusements and entertainment and drugs or anything that can distract them from the realities of sin and of judgment and the necessity to be morally accountable to a God or the necessity to be thankful to that God. And in an attempt to exhibit the best that mankind has to offer, they spout out foolish thought after foolish thought, professing themselves to be wise. They become fools. And notice, 
that the end result of their rejection is not inherently godlessness. It says in verse 23, it doesn't say that they removed God altogether, does it? What does it say that they do? They change God. They change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image, like unto corruptible man, into birds, into four-footed beasts, into creeping things. See, here's the, here's the reality within which all mankind has always lived. Mankind has no capacity to remove religious observance from his life. He is spiritual by nature. The worship of the supernatural is an objective necessity for humanity. May I say that again? The worship of the supernatural is an objective necessity for humanity. So what happens when a man casts off the true God? He's not thankful to the true God. He gives God no credit where credit is due and seeks to assert a godless existence. Well, God certainly doesn't go away. They just reform God in their own image. And so the false gods of the Greeks and the false gods of the Romans, those mythological gods of time past, what were they? They were gods that were just as corrupt and just as vile and just as wicked as the people who they lorded over. They deceived and they confused and they fought and they bickered and they had all the same problems that humans had. Why? Because mankind created gods in their own image. And so the green movement turns Mother Nature into a god and they shackle human progress in the name of sustainable development. And so people elevate politicians and they elevate celebrities to the status of deity. And they devote themselves entirely to the success of men or of ideologies or even of fiction. Have you ever heard somebody argue about whether Star Trek or Star Wars is better? Have you ever seen how vehement those arguments can get? Star Trek convention comes to town and all those Star Wars guys are out in front picketing or something on their Vader suits. Fist fights start. People get really worked up. I'm a Broncos fan. Just keeping up with the Broncos this week. Today's the big Broncos Chiefs game. It's being labeled as the biggest game in the NFL this year. Woman sells her ring, assessed to be a over three thousand dollar ring to get two tickets to the Broncos game. See, when we reject God of the Bible, we're not thankful to God for what He has given to us. We refuse thanksgiving and therefore refuse God's authority and refuse God's benevolence. We don't just get rid of God; we replace God, and so sports becomes our God, and so. Science fiction becomes our God. And so the president becomes our God. And we place a God in our lives that we can devote ourselves to because humanity has no ability to function outside of its necessity to worship. When we understand these things, we begin to understand the true nature of what agnosticism and atheism really are. These things are nothing new. Wise King Solomon told us in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 9, the things that hath been, it is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. Atheism, 
and agnosticism are not a natural extension of learning or of reason or of intellect. They are an open declaration of self-sufficient rejection of the authority of the God of the Bible over their lives, thus freeing them from their conscience of guilt and freeing them from the necessity of moral constraints. That's all it is. read another article this week. In the past several months, in Europe, particularly in England, atheist churches have been popping up. Seems like a bit of a contradiction, doesn't it? An atheist church. Well, they say it's church without God. They come and they listen to songs and they hear rousing speeches and of course, they take an offering. But they don't have God involved. And they think that because they don't name the name of God, there is no God there. They're not worshiping any God. Well, the very fact that they're having churches is revealing the reality that they are indeed a religion. We, we say all the time, atheism is a religion. Well, they're revealing it. They're having church. One of these just came to the United States, and it was a big thing this week, that this first atheist church is coming to the United States, and people are doing their worship of themselves here in the United States now in a, in a, in a systematic fashion. That's what we're talking about. Mankind has no capacity to free himself from worship. So he just worships himself. He removes God, but he still has church. And don't forget the offering. To put it simply, atheism, agnosticism, is man's most recent attempt to deaden his conscience to his guilt of sin and his knowledge of judgment. So, say, Pastor, we've gotten off track. No, we haven't. Because it, it, we're looking at the root of unthankfulness here. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, we see that them being unthankful to God is a symptom, is a manifestation of a root of God rejection. So as we dig down to the bottom of that dandelion, what we're finding is people that reject God. What we're finding is an unthankfulness as a natural extension of those who would reject God's authority and those who would reject God's benevolence. Unthankfulness is an attribute of God rejecter. Second, this morning, please turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, as we see that thankfulness is, uh, unthankfulness, excuse me, defines people in the last days apostasy. Unthankfulness defines people in the last days apostasy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul is warning a young pastor named Timothy about the character of society in the last days. And he uses two descriptors, one in verse 1 and one in verse 13, of these last days. In verse 1 he says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. So he describes these last days as perilous or dangerous times. That's what that word means in the Greek. Dangerous or fierce. Perilous times. In verse 13, he says this, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So in the last days, these will be dangerous times, but there will also be times where people are deceiving and being deceived. A time that is characterized by seducers being out and about. Well, we are in the last days. And we do see, indeed, that we live in perilous times. Times of evil. Evil men seducing, deceiving, and being deceived. And it is, indeed, getting worse and worse. Well, in verses 2 through 7, we see the characteristics of the evil men in these perilous last days. 
Look with me, beginning in verse 2. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce bakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. He says, from such turn away. For this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. You noticed in that list as we read it perhaps, right near the beginning in verse 2, the word unthankful is one of the attributes of these perilous last days. Unthankfulness among people is an evident token of the last day's apostasy. Paul describes the people of these last days in many ways. We looked at that list. And many of these should be familiar uh, to us. I would like to hit just a couple of these this morning as we look at the company with which this idea of unthankfulness keeps. What kind of company does unthankfulness keep? Well, this is the list. The first one I'd like to look at is that first one on the list, lovers of their own selves. Lovers of their own selves. If you've ever been to a psychiatrist or a psychologist or if you've ever um, heard, talk to someone who has been there, you will take note that one of the first things that the world of psychiatry seeks to do when they have somebody come into their um, authority or into their office is to get them to love themselves, to seek to form in them a good self-image, to love themselves. But you know, as we look at the testimony of the Word of God, what we find is that people who love themselves are not a characteristic of healthy Christians, people who recognize God and understand what God has expected, but rather it's a, it's the very nature of apostasy. It's the very nature of man's true nature. In other words, man has no problem loving himself. We have no problem loving ourselves. We don't need to be taught to love ourselves. Love of self comes naturally. The hard thing is not learning to love ourselves. The hard thing is learning to love others. The hard thing is loving our neighbor as ourselves. That's directly contradictory to anything that you will be told in the world today. You have to learn to love yourself. You have to treat yourself. You have to have a good self-image. Well, the Scriptures tell us that we are all as an unclean thing. That all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. It's not very uplifting to our self-image. But it is the reality of who we are in the face of an almighty holy God. 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8 tells us this. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. As we look at a world that emphasizes beyond anything else love of self, we are looking at a world that characterizes not godliness, 
but the apostasy of the last days. Let's look at another on the list. Disobedient to parents. Disobedient to parents. In the 1960s, something dramatic happened in, in this country. You'll have to... Uh, um, bear with me, I wasn't alive then. So I'm, I'm, I'm running from the history books here. I'm not running from my own experience. But in the 1960s, so I'm told, something dramatic happened in this country. It's called the Youth Revolt. Young people who had grown up in the modern, comfortable decade of the 1950s dramatically turned against the lifestyle of their parents and grandparents, against the politics of their parents and grandparents, against the religion of their parents and grandparents. These young people were war-weary. They were dealing with the constant message of the dangers of communism. They went through the weary years of the Korean conflict and of the Vietnam conflict. They went through an assassination of public figures such as John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King. Led by socialist movements around the country, the youth revolt began with a casting off of accepted moral absolutes. Modesty, both in clothing and in demeanor, were rejected. Christianity was replaced with the pursuit of Eastern religious pursuits. Drugs were used pervasively. Women sought to cast off their God-given role as homemaker and helpmate through radical feminism. All of these were fruits of an age that began with youth revolt. By the way, this was the era in which age-segregated ministry in the church became very popular as well. The youth were not interested in their parents' religion anymore in churches in an attempt to keep the youth from getting themselves into trouble while not um, bringing them into that which they had always understood with their parents' religion began to form large youth groups to help filter the kids away from that which the world was trying to take them into and back into the church but at the cost of segregating themselves from their parents. It's one of the reasons why we are a non-age segregated church today, in order that we might help families return to a mindset of family worship instead of segregated worship, of family growth in the knowledge of God instead of segregated growth in the knowledge of God. And so we see all of these elements, the fruit of this generation, there were some other fruits, legal fruits of this generation. We know that in 1962, uh, right as this youth revolt was really picking up steam, Engel versus Vital decided in the Supreme Court that prayer was not constitutional in schools. We look a decade later in Roe versus Wade and we begin to see a court case that doomed millions of unborn children to death for no other reason than them being inconvenient for their parents. These were the fruits born out of a generation of those who were disobedient to parents. It's not a minor thing when you see that child take the cookie out of the cookie jar after he's been told no. See, that's a symptom of a problem. The problem goes all the way back to the last day's apostasy. The problem goes all the way back to the very roots of what makes us rebellious against God. These are serious symptoms. Lovers of self, disobedient to parents. I'd like us to look at one more on this list, one more attribute. The last one um, in verse 4. Lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. 
A society that functions almost exclusively to pursue its own pleasure. That is a symptom of the last day's apostasy. A people that weighs amusement and comfort of more value than a right relationship with the Almighty God. A symptom of apostasy. A culture that is so bent on personal pleasure that it will even yield those things which would seemingly be to their benefit, such as personal freedoms, as long as they can sustain their consummate lust for pleasure. It's a wicked attribute of the last day's apostasy. And as you see people who will stand in line for days and days and days on end to get the newest iPhone, or the young people in China who will sell their kidneys on the black market to get money to buy the next iPhone. As you see the symptoms of materialism in this world whereby people will accept the, the, the removal of their personal freedoms in order to get free government money so that they can live a life of pleasure. We are seeing symptoms of an apostate generation that loves pleasure more than it loves God. Lest we lose our pleasures, we must sacrifice. Unthankfulness is an attribute of God rejectors. Unthankfulness defines people in the last days of apostasy. I'd like us now to put all of this together. We've looked at some of these elements where unthankfulness finds itself. You say, well, well, pastor, yeah, I've, I've found some unthankfulness in my life. But it's okay, I got rid of it. I've decided to be thankful for those things now. But what I'd like you to see today is that there is a root of unthankfulness. And it's not enough for you to simply flick off all the yellow heads of unthankfulness that are found in your yard. You've got to dig down and you've got to pull up the roots. And that's our third and final point today. The root of unthankfulness is selfishness and pride. The root of unthankfulness is selfishness and pride. Let me walk you through the anatomy of our unthankful dandelion this morning. You look at the head of that dandelion, that yellow head, and it's going to be unthankfulness in all of its forms. And if you allow it to stay there, and if you allow it to dry out, then it's just going to blow all over the place and plant unthankfulness everywhere, in your church, in your family, everywhere. So you clip off that unthankfulness and you say, problem solved, right? But you've got a stem. And if we are to trace unthankfulness down to its root, that stem is always going to trace itself through discontentment. Through discontentment. The Scriptures tell us a great deal about being content. Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, For I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, we are called to be people of contentment not walking in the lusts of our covetousness, but rather with contentment. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6-8, through 8, we are called to be contented people. Why is contentment so important? Because if I don't have contentment in my life, if I look at that thing or that person in my life and I become discontent with it, then I am down the path to show unthankfulness as I head up the ladder, as I head up the dandelion. But as I go down the dandelion, that's where things get really bad. Because now I am fostering in my life a selfishness and a pride whereby I will cast off that which I am discontent with in unthankfulness to God for what He has given to me and I will seek that which I want at the expense of what God has supplied. And so, 
I'm not thankful for my wife. I become discontent with the relationship my wife and I have. And that selfishness and that pride works out in my life as that dandelion blooms and blows out into adultery. And so I'm unthankful with my, uh, for my car, and I'm discontent with the car that God has provided for me for this time. And so as the selfishness and the pride work themselves out in this discontentment and this unthankfulness, I am now in deep debt supplying my need for the newest gadget, the newest car, the newest thing. And I have yielded the temperance and the ability for me to live my life in godliness because I have submitted myself to debt in discontentment and unthankfulness. You see, discontentment and unthankfulness become something much greater in our lives if we don't root them out. It becomes deep-rooted sin that can destroy our lives. See, unthankfulness. I mean, just because I'm not thankful for the car I have, well, it's an illustration, but it can get pretty deep. So the dandelion of unthankfulness, the stem of discontentment, and that root, that root of selfish pride. In Genesis chapter 3, Satan approached Eve. And he asked her and he said, Has God refused to give you any tree in the garden? Is there a tree that God has said you cannot eat of it? And Eve rightfully twisted the, que- the question back to a proper understanding. She said, no, 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 serpent. That's not what happened. God said, I can eat of any tree except for one. It's not, I can't eat of that one. It's that I can get have any of them except for one. Satan says, God lied to you. See, he knows that if you eat of that tree, you won't die. But if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll become like a God, knowing good and evil. And he began to stir up in Eve a lack of thankfulness for what God had provided for her, a discontentment with that which God had given, and a desire to have that which God had not given. And she looked at it, and this discontentment and this unthankfulness dug deep and hit the root of selfishness and pride that was in her life. That said, yeah, how dare God withhold that from me? How dare God? God is not seeking out my best interests. He is trying to withhold something from me. I know better than God. And she cast off God's authority and she exalted her own. That's Romans chapter 1. And she gave to her husband, who wasn't deceived. He knew full well what was going on. And he, in abject rebellion against God, partook of the fruit as well. And therefore, mankind fell into sin because of Adam's transgression. The root was a selfishness and a pride that said, I know better than God. It grew into the stem of discontentment about what God has given. And it flowered in that unthankfulness that said, God's not been good to me. And the end result was sin. The root of unthankfulness. Perhaps over these past several weeks, as we have been together, 
talking about thankfulness, you've found areas of, in your life where you have not been very thankful. You've not been very thankful to God for certain things, and maybe you've gotten those right. God, I, I'm sorry for not being thankful for the house that you've given me, or the car that you've given me, or the wife that you've given me, or for the job that you've given to me for this time, for the church that you've given to me, whatever the case may be. And you've plucked off that dandelion head. You said, I'm going to be thankful for that. May I encourage you to dig a little deeper? Trace the stem of discontentment that might have bloomed that unthankfulness and trace it all the way down to that taproot that is dug into your heart whereby you are being proud or selfish and telling God that you know better than He does what you need or telling God that He's incapable of providing for you so you need to provide for yourself or telling God that He doesn't understand your circumstances. And pull that up. Dig it out from the very deepest. Get them all. Because if you don't, I guarantee you that head's going to pop up again. It's going to bloom again in your life. You may have popped off one unthankfulness, and so you are now determined to be thankful for that old car that is still running. But, you're not going to be thankful for that other thing. And the thankful, unthankfulness is just going to keep popping up because you never took care of the root. Let's take care of the root of unthankfulness as we go from here today. Let's pray. Father, thank You that Your Word is sufficient. Thank You that You have given us in Your Word the means by which for us to live lives of godliness and sincerity that we might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good work. Lord, I pray for those who are among us this morning. I ask that you would use this not just to pinpoint those areas of unthankfulness, but to recognize that unthankfulness is rooted in God-rejection and is rooted in the last day's apostasy. It's rooted in that pride that would say, I know better than God. Father, use this reality to compel us to dig down to the very roots of our sin and to pluck it out, all of it, so that we can be men and women and children who praise You, who thank You, not with a surface-level thanksgiving or even just a head knowledge of thanksgiving, but a heart that is truly, contentedly, purposefully, regularly thankful to You for Your bountiful benevolence in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.